you are being watched. The government has a secret system, a podcast that recounts every episode of Person of Interest. I know, because we made it. We designed the podcast to continue our bullshit, but we see everything. Random numbers of the week. People like you. Episodes the average viewer deems irrelevant. You wouldn't watch it, so we did. But I needed partners. Someone who had never watched this before. Hunted by weirdos on the internet, we record in secret. We will never find them. But, newbie or diehard, if your episode's up, we will find you. Hello, and welcome to the library for Podcast of Interest. This is a rewatch podcast for person of interest featuring two veteran operatives and one newly initiated. My name is Justin, and joining me are my two associates, my veteran operative Jude and our new recruit Anna. Jude, Anna, is it gay to, like, tell somebody that you remain undefeated over the phone as you're about to die for them? <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't know if it's gay. But I think it's fucking cool. I absolutely ship those two. Yeah. <laughs> Did you care about Scarface before this episode? If not, it's okay. We care about him a lot after episode nine. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> My God. It is. This is, um, yeah. It's a fucking great episode. Because I didn't ask it, because this is our second recording of the evening to pull back the curtain a little bit. I realized I didn't ask you about it uh, on the first one because we were too busy talking about war crimes. Um, how you doing, both of you? Not bad, not bad. Um, it's been a week. Yeah. How about you, Justin? I'm I'm doing all right. This is like my, my last normal weekend for a while before I just start like going like there's things I've got like every weekend going on now for like. A lot of weekends after <laughs> this one, but it, but at least this one's going to be quiet. Do you do you want to put a plug in for the uh, the thing you just wrote for Gatecrashers? No, because this will be coming out. In, this will be coming out in like six weeks, so it'll be completely useless. God damn it! <laughs> no, you well, like to we should do it anyway. anyway for the bit? Then that means we should do yeah, it no, anyway. Let's, do, let's put a plug in for the bit. Yeah, no, uh, the site I write for Gatecrashers. We did, uh, I got to, I got to do an advanced review of Star Trek Picard season three, which, um, by the time this will come out, like several episodes, like pretty much every episode that I reviewed will be out by then. So you can get like what I thought of, you can get what I thought of it when I couldn't talk about spoilers. Um, but you know, I, overall it's like, I think Star Trek Picard is not a very good, it's like, it's not a great show. I think it's like mid and background material at best it's like if it has a lot of plots that run too long and the season long plot doesn't really work out for it and i mean the first season really is just mass effect 3 yeah not not unlike the first several seasons of tng it is entirely banking on patrick stewart picard season three meanwhile is like latter half tng where the plots are okay but you're really just there for the character stuff, and it works. Um, it is the TNG reunion you thought you were getting from Picard. That's all I want. Um, all right. Yeah, and it's good. It's and This is one of those things where it's like, I think it's important that, like, for what makes it work. And this was the interesting part of, like, writing the review of, like, this is why it works when, say, like, the next generation movies are have only really a 25% success rate 
First Contact is the only good Next Generation yep. movie, and that's because it's just a solid action film. Yeah. Is that is that the one with the, the drunk old guy? Yep. Yeah, it's the one with James Cromwell and the board. Mm. Fucking love that movie. Yeah, it's it, but it's the reason why, like the next the next generation movies sort of suck because everybody has gotten older by like ten years, but that goes completely unacknowledged. It go it is like they have a new ship even, but everybody still has the same job, the same rank, and like the same character interactions, except for the fact that Troy and Riker get back together and Worf gets. Worf continually gets pulled back in from DS9. <laughs> um, because they're like, wait, shit, he's on a different show now. We need to find an excuse for it. So, like, nobody's allowed to change. And, like, it's like, we have to keep it an amber for everybody who's going to the movies. Um, but for Picard Season 3, everybody's got an old. They've got an acknowledged it. They've got in gray. Like, everybody's got in gray. Um, like, Gates McFadden has like the rogue silver streak in her hair. I've seen the I've seen the promo images for Worf and like whew, wow. Worf is daddy, honestly. Wow, Worf what is a daddy. Look. Um, <laughs> I am so happy we're spending so much time on this. I can see yeah. Zathras at his computer editing this, just like <laughs> for, a, for an article that got released at my best guest like three to five weeks ago. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no, I mean, it's fun. It's fun because everybody got old and changed, and that makes the reunion more, much more meaningful. It means that they actually uh, have something to talk about the reunion, I'm guessing, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I'm excited actually, for it. Yeah. That's, that's what I love about TNG. I could give so few shits about, like, the events of TNG. I just like the characters. And so the idea that we're going to get, like, Worf and lore and fucking yeah. Moriarty and... All this weird TNG like bits in a show yeah. again. Yeah, like there there's a plot point that revolves around Popko the Weasel. Sold. <laughs> it's it's great. Um also they bring back they bring back a villain that has like a very specific CGI motif. And the fact that it's been like 25 years since this villain was like last on camera, like you can f- like it they st- it still looks like the same thing except it looks like it was made with current modern CGI and now it's just like ooh this looks weird and delightful now instead of like oh this is a funny 90 CGI thing uh, i look forward um, to it please let yeah. it be let it be the giant CGI snowflake that ate data's home homeworld when they found him so that does not that doesn't appear but uh, we'll, we'll go. This is my last Star Trek thing for the night. Um, there is a Star Trek comic series going out right now, uh, just called Star Trek by uh, IDW. Um, by Jack, uh, I'm I'm gonna get their names wrong. Jackson Kelly and Colin Lanzig. I might have their. Might, you might need to switch their first names. But it is a series where Cisco, where uh, Cisco is in charge of a experimental starship called the Theseus. Um, it is the ship of Theseus. It is acknowledged in Canada as the ship of Theseus because it's specifically built to be like a ship that they build. They demolish and build back together. It's very funny. <laughs> Scotty's there. Um, Bless. but like what are the, like the, 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 the story is about Cisco going around the galaxy because an alien is killing gods 
and the first uh, the first issue is them finding the crystalline entities, which is very cool. It's like tying stuff around and like Dope. weird random bits of former Star Trek history. Nice. Yeah. It's very it's a very good series. I I'm trying to leverage an, an interview with the creators because they're it's it's a fun series. Uh, they're also the dudes who currently writing Captain America right now. But this is not a Star Trek podcast. Twelve minutes yes. of bullshit. You're welcome, Zathras. Cut that, Jeff Zathras. <laughs> uh, don't don't cut the conversation. Cut Anna as little, but not yet. <laughs> Um, tonight we are covering episodes 9 and 10 of season 4 of Person of Interest, The Devil You Know, and The Cold War. Ah, you've got The Devil You Know. Take us away. All right. This one's written by Eric Mountain and directed by Richard J. Lewis. So we pick up right on the heels of the last episode. Elias is our new number and Martine has tracked down Shaw and has her at gunpoint at the cosmetics counter. Shaw, being a badass, of course, has heavy weaponry stashed under her desk. and managed- Not just any heavy weaponry, a PID. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that, Justin. Our star, listen, the st- Stargate fans gotta call out. Yep. C- gotta call out the PID. Um... So so Shaw manages to escape uh, and is spirited away by a motorcycle riding route. They hide in a moving truck until Fusco is able to rescue them in a camera dead zone, at which point they start to make their way back to HQ. But Shaw is insistent that she wants to help John save Elias. Don't worry, I'll get to that plot in a minute. Root reluctantly agrees to bring Shaw to help, except whoops, uh, nope, she leads Shaw to a school cafeteria and sedates her and brings her back to headquarters to protect her and the whole team. Martine investigates Fusco for his search of the moving truck and reports to Greer that she believes that the machine is hiding the data on on its team from Samaritan. Greer grants her a much larger search team to track down Shaw and the rest of Team Machine. Meanwhile, John locates Elias at a meeting with his accountant and spots the Brotherhood photographing the meeting. He meets with Elias and Scarface, who actually has a name, Anthony, and I will I will be using the name Anthony in this summary out of respect for the character. <laughs> <laughs> but we all know that in our hearts he's, he's Scarface. I like that even yeah. Reese comments on it. He's like, I'm surprised he has a name. I always just thought of him as Scarface. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> which, which I mean, feels like a writer joke at this point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The two of them, meaning Elias and Anthony, are confident in Elias's safety. Uh, but they're forced to flee when Elias's doorman attempts to kill him. Their next stop is a meeting with Elias's friend Gino, who is suspiciously nervous. Uh, and that would be because he sold out to the Brotherhood while Elias was in hiding. They escape again, this time heading to an empty apartment in an old group home to wait for a delivery from the accountant. The Brotherhood beat them there, though, and they narrowly make it to the elevator and head into the penthouse. The penthouse, as it turns out, has both a safe with Eliza's money and a secret exit. But the Brotherhood get there before Elias can open the vault. Elias and John escape into the hidden passage, but Anthony stays behind to cover them and is captured. Dominic and Link interrogate Anthony for the vault combination, but he does not reveal it. John and Elias eventually make it outside to Harold in a getaway car, but Elias pulls a gun on John, namely the gun that John gave him, (laughs) and returns to the building to 
attempt to save Anthony by surrendering to Dominic. Dominic, of course, reneges on his deal. He refuses to free Anthony and insists on Elias giving him the vault code. Elias ultimately surrenders that too and says goodbye to Anthony over the phone. But when Dominic's goons input the code into the vault, it blows up the entire top floor of the building. John busts in, allowing Elias to escape, uh, but misses Dominic. In the epilogue, Dominic and Link discuss their plans for continued recruitment into the Brotherhood, as well as Elias' unlikely allies in John, Shaw, and whoever they're working with. Elias meets with his accountant, and we learn that they and Anthony were all members of the group home that Elias just blew up. Over the phone, Elias informs Harold of his desire for revenge on Dominic and warns Team Machine to stay out of his way. That's episode. There's a lot. There's there's a lot going on in this one. Yeah. Um, so the first thing I'm going to note for this is that the is the the safe code ten thirty seventy four is a date. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, specifically, it's the Rumble in the Jungle. George Foreman versus Muhammad Ali. <laughs> How nice. would you know? Did please tell me that was on the wiki and you did not look like know that yourself or or spend the time to look that up. I mean, it was on it was on the wiki, but I like I or but I like I Google, but it's like ten thirty seventy four. Like I recognized it as a date, so I like Googled ten thirty seventy four, and I was like, oh, it's yeah. That's funny though. It's the the rumble in the jungle. Yeah, which which is which specifically Reese references the rope dope. Yeah, which which was uh, Ali's strategy during it, which is like leaning on the ropes to absorb shock from punches. Yeah, um, which is delightful it's just like i find that to be like a it's the thing where like even when he is taking his biggest l elias is still a king yeah 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 this this is a great elias episode i this is an episode that made me want to like i i need to go and rewatch the first elias episode and like essentially not quite run these side by side but what do you want to say justin so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> both of the parting, both of, so I, like, I, I, I did, like, this was on the wiki too, but I, I know, like, both of the final shots for, for this episode and Witness are of Brighton Beach. Nice. Mm. Yeah. And both of Elias, like, walking away alone. Yeah. This is, so, this is an interesting episode to me because this is an episode that is all about protecting people. All the plots in this episode. Elias is trying to protect his people, accountant and Anthony. Scarface is protecting him. Harold protects Fusco by not bringing him in on all of this. He's about to when Martine shows up and Fusco, like a fucking king, just like lies God his damn. way straight past Martine. Oh, yeah. Wow. Fusco, just Fusco, what an icon. Bluff. Yeah, no, he's She's just like... like he- She's she's trying to like bluff her way that she's a DA DEA agent. He's like, okay, well then I'll just call the DEA lead agent and we'll check on that, right? Just calm as a cucumber. I love it. He's such he's so good in that scene. But Harold's watching and he knows that Fusco is on the edge of a razor there. Yeah. And immediately pulls back. He's about to ask for for Fusco's help and pulls back to protect him. Mm -hmm. And Root is trying to protect Shaw 
And Shaw's, her, her literal line is, I don't need protection. I do the protecting. This mm-hmm. whole episode is about the people who they choose yeah. to protect and how they choose to protect people. I think it's really interesting that throughout this episode, you see this, there, this theme is, is reiterated. Yeah. I think, uh, which, which, gosh, there, there's something that is a, a, a common trope, I would say in spy thrillers of the fetishization of the willingness to throw one's life away. Yeah. Of, of, of how, like of like people of like willingness to throw oneself into danger or, or, and like to downplay one's to to downplay one's worth, which I think is it's, it is a coping mechanism Mm. for um, a very unhealthy uh, way of living, which I mean, it's, it's, these are our heroes still, but it's like, you know, they are still doing things that is incredibly dangerous. And it's like, there's a sort of conditioning that the people in this kind of, work do and i yeah i think it's interesting of just like shaw refusing to be seen as vulnerable yeah and like refusing to like believe that like oh hey maybe i need to be rescued for once yeah Yeah. god there's so this is such a great episode the the way that everyone is trying to protect shaw and she just refuses it she just yeah she, she absolutely refuses to accept that and just wants to get out there and help people is yeah I think it's a really great, these last couple episodes have been such a great arc for Shaw. And we're really seeing how much she's changed since her introduction and yeah. how, how much she's embraced this role as like, I save people now. That's, that's what I do. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I really love, I mean, look, I've talked about <laughs> how much I love Shaw and Root's dynamic, but I particularly love it in this episode. Yes, I think their sexual chemistry could start a fucking I mean, this, fire. It says something, but it says something about this episode, and we'll, we've got to talk about this. We'll, we will talk about this. I swear. But the fact that Shaw choking Root and Root saying "You can end me anytime" is not the horniest or gayest thing in this episode. Yeah, <laughs> is a, a monument to it. Yeah, yeah, it really. Uh, there's some stuff going on there. I love Root's smile when Shaw grabs her throat. Like, yeah. Root yeah. knows that this is a serious moment, but she can't help it. Like, the smile that she has on her face is like, yeah. I love the loyalty that this that this team has to Shaw yeah. and to each other. And well, I to love Elias. And I you read my mind <laughs> and to Elias who is for all intents and purposes, like an unofficial part of this team at this point, he is part of their mission. Even if he doesn't work with them directly, he functions, he helps them do their work and he is, a, he operates towards the same ends, which is to protect the common people, the like the irrelevant people, because he doesn't, what's, he's not interested funny in is that it's them. such a, this is such a like change from the the earliest Elias stuff where mm-hmm. like he was a legit threat. It's mm. it's fascinating to see the team like I mean work with he him. He is I think he is still like he is a I I would say that like Elias is not a societal good. Yeah. Except for the fact that he is 
the most stable option currently. He is an ally of convenience. I think uh, I I don't disagree with that statement, but I would also say that he is a moral monster, and the yeah. There he, is a way of reading there there in a lot of ways, so are John and Shaw, and I think that's why they identify with him and they recognize him as someone that they can work with, and who's while he may be working on the other side of the law, ultimately they all understand each other, and they respect that he doesn't want to cause chaos and destruction. He has a code and he has mm-hmm. rules and they can work with that. Yeah, definitely. And his, and his part in taking down HR, you know, yes. I'm sure helped quite a bit. Yeah, their mutual love for Carter, I think, probably certainly bonded them all closer together. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. But yeah, I, d- I definitely re- want to rewatch Witness because the, you know, having, having another episode where john and elias are you know hiding out in an abandoned building essentially you know trying to evade um evade mobsters um yeah is Mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a really nice circle back even even to the point of john giving elias a gun and elias pointing it at him yeah so yeah the like i i think there's a lot there's just so many callbacks to 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 witness yeah. I mean, there I mean, like even one is people quoting Latin. <laughs> cuz like uh, cuz Elias is like Veni Vidi Vici you know, in witness and Dominic is like, "Oh, hey, you're Italians. Uh, you come from the Romans, which let's be clear here." <laughs> 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 I'm I'm listen, I'm not Italian. And but um Rome was not all of Italy, at least to start out with. <laughs> it was a city and I mean then the then southern Italy and then there's a whole bunch of stuff there. We don't have time to go into that. Welcome to Roman History Hour with Justin. <laughs> Honestly, for as much as I enjoy the Rome Total War games, Roman history is a bit of a weakness of mine. <laughs> You mean you haven't read the rise and fall of the Roman Empire? No, I have. I did break my toe on one of, uh, on a set of them, though. Um, that is a fascinating bit of Justin trivial trivia. Or I not broke, not broke, but like I had severe swelling. Um, you might have broken it. Yeah, I, 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 I've never, I've never had, I've never gone to gone for medical treatment for a broken bone, so I've never knowingly <laughs> had one. You, <laughs> you, you probably broke it because it's it's pretty easy to break a to break a toe and just not realize um, it. Fascinating. But yeah, when I was working at the library, like the the branch, like one of the branch, one of the things we had at our branch was like there was like a three volume hardcover set of like. The rise and fall of the Roman Empire, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. That's the given one. And like it was it, I was setting up a branch. Um, so there's like nobody there. So I wore sandal or, or like sandals and I dropped the thickest volume on my foot. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, like it fell it fell off the shelf. Bam. And I. But I I said some things that made me very glad this li- that the branch was not open. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, speaking back to Latin, 
Um, Scar- uh, Anthony's final words are uh, Morior Invictus, which you can either translate as death before defeat or I die undefeated. And Elias's final words are Invictus Maneo, which is I remain undefeated. <sighs> which, God. Um, yeah. So Oof. we get... We get Scarface lore finally. Yeah. yeah. And more Elias lore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We find out that they were both that the the building that they the building that this episode takes place in was a group was a group home um that Elias and Anthony were both part of. Um they spent time in and that Anthony was there because he had killed his father, his abusive father. And that is where the uh the nominal scar comes from. Yeah. God, I love this episode and, but I really love this bit of world building or lore mm-hmm. behind these characters because it really does explain to me so much about not explain, but it really gives you such a good background for how Elias ends up who he is Yeah, because he, his, his, his origin is, is not as a mobster son. And not mm-hmm. in his mother's kitchen. His origin is really in that group home with these these two other individuals who will become like his brothers. Yeah. And that's where his sense of righteousness and his moral compass comes from. Because he, he identifies, you can tell that that's, he has an, a sense of what's right and what's wrong. And that place was what was an evil place to him. And you you can very easily imagine that being sort of where he derived a lot of that moral righteousness or fortitude, you know? Yeah. And it built him the, the, the foundation of what he needed to become the man he was. These two completely uh, incorruptible allies. Yeah, from, from a narrative point, point of view, um, I'm not always the biggest fan of the thing of taking a background character, making us care for that background character, and then killing them off in the same episode. I I mean, I, I, I would say that, like... I, 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 I'm I fine with it here, though. Anthony, Anthony is, like, an elevated background character. Right. He just, like, we get his character, I think. I, I think he's much more developed than, like, a background character. Yeah. Well, and, and that's just, what I was like, going to say, is that we've had, you know, we've had... He's been there since the first season, and we've seen him this entire time being utterly devoted to Elias. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm cool with it. Like, I, mm-hmm. I thought it was same. very effective. Um, yeah, I was just saying here. that, like, as somebody who doesn't particularly enjoy that trope, usually, I thought that it was very well executed here. Because it is, it's a character who we haven't had a lot of information about and haven't had, and who hasn't had a lot of dialogue, but who we have seen a lot and who has had kind of quiet characterization. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. And oh, just the way that Elias and Anthony talk to each other and about each other is just. Okay. Who else is shipping them now? I mean, it's so much. It's right? yeah, it, like it, it is. Right. Like, Oh my God. <laughs> I did not, I did not expect to watch this episode and end up shipping Elias and Scarface. But here we are. 
It's all about the intricate rituals that men use. Uh, <laughs> but it's like, yeah, no, it's great. I, it's just, it's, I mean, like, it's sort of kind of out of the left field, but at the same time, it's like Scarface has been this, like, you know, for three years, this incredibly loyal, devoted uh, follower who, like, basically never questions Elias, never does, like, always follows in, is, is like, his most loyal devotee. My man is just, like, he is ride or die, and mm-hmm. it, it is, I think... And and previously and previously Elias has done taken actions that put himself in danger in order to protect Anthony um, yeah. back in the HR subplot, right? Yeah. So you know it's it's it goes way back. Yeah, it's it's cool. I think of like building on that and putting that here, even like and like letting that letting that character development like boss like building also to be clear there's actually nothing textual here but um, but it's like being allowed to be elevated for a singular episode i think there is i think what's textual here is that these two individuals have an incredibly intense relationship and closeness and you can attribute that to whatever you want obviously they have a history that goes way back and i think you can re- you can read that in a lot of different ways because we don't typically see that kind of openly emotional devotion in between men depicted in media so it's mm-hmm. really easy to read that in a non-platonic fashion um but i think it's a great relationship whether you ship it or not i think it's a a super well-portrayed relationship and yeah i really really love the line that uh, Justin, I think you pulled it out. Um, there is more than one life hanging in the balance, perhaps, but his is the one I care about. The best we can do is protect those closest to us. Fucking oh. right. Like <laughs> Elias is so he's just, I mean, yeah, it, it just devoted to, to the people that he cares about. And that's where his moral compass points is that he's, willing to do anything to try and protect Anthony in this moment. I think that like something that is, I would say common in both Dominic and Elias is that they are both classics appreciators. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Elias, Elias is the benefit. I think of a more traditional education, um, but they, but they both recognize history and stuff. And like, Elias calls out like Sun Tzu in this episode, but see, I I don't think I don't think Elias necessarily had a particularly traditional education. I think he's just educated himself. I can see that, yeah, but yeah, he, he was also a group he home. was also a teacher. Yeah. Uh, so I I assume that I I assume that Elias was an accredited teacher. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like I'm just. <laughs> Like that is part of the like I choose that for his I, I choose to believe that for his cover, my man went to like six years of college or whatever and had student <laughs> loans. <laughs> um, but um, I think it's like the most it's it's something like out of like the primest of Shakespeare like Shakespeare, where at the end Dominic. Like after the bomb's gone off, Dominic says, "I still won," 
and Elias is then why aren't you smiling? That's such yeah. a good fucking line. Oh. It is such a good line. Uh yeah, and this one and this episode and the last one definitely you know, increase the stakes on the brotherhood and Yeah, like, they feel inc- like they feel incredibly menacing. Yeah. Yeah. Also Team Samaritan. Team Samaritan, faceless goods who are gonna get shot. <laughs> <laughs> like people are gonna die of fun. Yeah. Yep. All right. Um let's see. Anything else I want to talk about on this one? Not for me. Yep. I mean, just to shout out again for Shaw choking root. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Truly great. Also, also shout out to as Shaw is like, you know, lying on the cot in the headquarters. Bear, bear comes over and like worriedly watches over her. Oh yeah, such a good boy. Love bear. All right, on we go. All right, I've got the last one. It is episode ten, "The Cold War," written by Amanda Siegel, directed by Michael Offer. So in the aftermath of the last episode, Finch brings Shaw a peace offering for Root tranking her, her favorite sandwich, and she finally relents on staying in the subway while Reese works their new number. They discover, however, that they aren't the only ones doing so. Before he can even figure out that they are there to stop her from killing her abusive husband, one of Samaritan's agent tells her that they've taken care of him, as Samaritan hacks his insulin pump to overdose him, and he dies of of, uh, insulin shock. As the agent walks away, he delivers a message to the machine via a street camera. Samaritan says hello. Samaritan, as it turns out, has been reaching out to the machine by running the city smoothly. Besides running the, the irrelevance and reducing crime, he's even got it's even got the buses and trains running on time. A quick chat between Greer and his agents reveals the plan. 24 hours of zero crime to show the machine the strength of Samaritan. Meanwhile, the machine sends Root downtown, where she runs into the agent from earlier, Lambert, who tells her that Samaritan wants to talk to the machine. Root gives him the brush off, and Lambert says now they'll see the opposite of Samaritan's goodwill. The result is a city in chaos. Crime erupts. After seven deaths, the machine says it's time to talk. Root is sent to a church, and oh my god, it's the meme. If you are familiar with memes anywhere and you have seen three people sitting in church pews with guns, you know which one I'm talking about. Uh, Root is given an address of where the machine can talk to Samaritan, which turns out to be a school in New Rochelle, where Reese's former flame Jessica used to live. For those of you not up on your obscure person of interest suburb lore, there Root talks to a young boy who apparently is also a uh, hacker savant who is wearing a hearing aid. Their conversation turns out to be less of a conversation than a threat. Samaritan assures the machine that it will destroy her. They discuss they that they both need humanity, but dis- disagree on what to do with them. The machine firmly states it has a moral code, but Samaritan does not. Samaritan asks, you know you can't win, don't you? And the machine answers, yes. She refuses to give up her life to save her team, because they share her beliefs. Meanwhile, Shaw bails on the subway to try and go be helpful, while the machine sends Root downtown just in time for Samaritan to crash the stock market. Our flashback 
takes us to 1973 to a young Greer working for MI6. He's ordered by his boss to disappear a KGB agent. The mission goes sideways when the agent recognizes Greer and his backup, shooting the backup. When Greer reports in that he wants to interrogate the man, he's abruptly hung up on. Thanks to the judicious application of torture via fingers in a bullet wound, he learns that the man who gave him the orders, his boss, is KGB as well as MI6, and set Greer up to die along with the target. Greer tells the man to walk it off towards the hospital and says he no longer works for MI6. He returns to said boss, confronts him over his treason, and then kills him. He voices what we now know to be his ultimate belief, that nations are antiquated. He destroys his own file and leaves. So the first thing I want to I want I want to talk about this episode is that I agree with Shaw. The appropriate application of mayonnaise and the appropriate the appropriate con- the appropriate mixture of condiments on your sandwich <laughs> is the thing that makes or breaks it. I and agree. And apparently enough pepperoncinis to like upset the strongest of stomachs according to Harold. <laughs> like there there is there is a correct ratio of mustard and like I'm a mayo fan unlike Shaw. Um like there's a correct there's a correct ratio of condiments and it's whatever the fuck Togo's uses. <laughs> I can't disagree with you there. I I I like there, I, there I fuck with Togo's specific, man. Yeah. There's a very specific mayo to mustard ratio that Togo's does on like a sandwich that is just mm, it's, it's nicely done. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Cause like you put too much condiment on your sandwich and like, it's going to get soggy really fast, yeah. but too little. And it's dry and nobody wants a dry sandwich. That's just no. gross. Yeah. I put most of my thoughts in the summary, but I have a few, <laughs> a few notes on this episode. Uh, first, I neglected to mention in the summary that uh, when we first, when Finch first returns to the subway with Shaw's sandwich, uh, Root is there wearing a giant bear costume. God. Which the- is not my co- my kink, but I'm 100% sure it's someone's. I mean, I mean, furries exist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also that feels like, like, it's not a furry. This yeah, it's like not it's a not furry bear furry costume. Thing. It's a, no, like, but it's mascot also like, costume. Yeah. Yeah. I also like that, and I don't know if if you guys caught this, but in the background, after Shaw, like, effortlessly gets out of the handcuffs that she's, been handcuffed uh that finch used to handcuff her to the bench root is in the background while finch and shaw are talking and she's just like playing with the handcuffs like she puts them on and sort of like pulls on them a little bit (laughs) it's a nice little detail where she's like got this smile on her face as she like pulls on the handcuffs it's i'll have to rewatch that it's very good it's very funny yeah i didn't i didn't catch that in the background uh see and and you folks said that this was the episode with the meme with a meme in it, and I was here thinking that it was going to be root in the bear costume. <laughs> no, nope. no. <laughs> and it's then, the one that's seen on the internet. The, the and then, one. and then I, you know, got further in the episode was like, oh. <laughs> It's so, it's so, like, it's funnier even in context because it's like they do the, oh, God, God, God. Yeah. yeah. Seeing it all, like, uh, unfold, so like silly. dominoes coming down is, is, is so good, especially because none of them are holding their guns 
particularly elegantly or gracefully. Yeah, they're, they're doing it like the they're doing it like the way that like old spy movies do of like I'm holding it like my wrist has been locked in position. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's goofinani. It's it's I have to show you that I have a gun for the camera. <laughs> yeah. Uh it's it's great though. Yeah, it's very good. I ha- I have to I have to say something which is y'all please tell me that the show's not going to kill off Shaw because I am not sure that I can take it. <laughs> if so, <laughs> because like uh, the show is not going to kill off Shaw. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Because I, between last episode and this one, I am like get getting like legitimately very worried. I will, we will have a discussion about something in a couple episodes um like there's going to be a thing we're going to tell you the behind the scenes re- like they're 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 setting up something with shaw that is for behind the scenes reasons okay namely the actress is pregnant okay um it's next episode it's not it's not a couple of oh episodes. yeah oh gosh really oh but damn it's, it's, so yeah if, next episode we're gonna talk we'll, it's, we'll talk more okay. about what happens so she'll but, be so like, she'll be off screen but not killed off yeah thank god um, yeah, no, she she had twins, which wow, good, yeah, good for we her. Can, we can very briefly say that she, the actress, was offered like to stay on the show and do like be locked in the subway the whole time, and she felt like it was too contrary to the the character's nature to just stay there. So she elected to like let's take it another direction because mm-hmm. she she didn't want to just be like behind desks the whole time while she grew two more people inside of her. Yeah. And I feel like I respect that. Yeah. But it was the actress's decision for it to go this direction, the direction okay. that it does. Yeah. Which is cool. Um, I, I am always, I'm, o- I'm always a fan of that, you know, like, and, um, le- leverage continues to be my favorite example, but thank you. Thank you both for the reassurance because I needed yeah. it. <laughs> I yeah it's there there will be a dramatic thing that happens the next episode like it's if then else like it's we'll, we'll get there yeah we, we don't have to yeah. talk about it but if then else is like a top three whole show episode dang yeah dang yeah um like th- this is cold war if then else and control delete are a trilogy okay we're and yeah, person of interest only puts on bangers when they do trilogies yeah. yeah. Greer getting his backstory now, I think, is really interesting. Like, learning that, like, we knew he was former MI6. Yeah. But learning the exact circumstances of, like, his, his, ex- like, he, he was in the Cold War. My man got seriously fucked over. Yeah. Yeah. My man was the protagonist in a Jean Le Carré novel. Yeah. It makes, so, I come to British spycraft in a slightly crooked direction than most people. I I read John Le Carre after I read Declare. So okay. I, I was I'm I'm consistently I mean, surprised. Declare is, yeah. <laughs> I mean Declare is a John Le Carre novel that just happens to also have like Lovecraftian entities in it. Except yeah. they're not Lovecraftian, they're something else. I just don't want to say cheating. it and ruin it. Don't blow it. It's a part of the fucking st- Spoiler, man. I can't listen. I'm not spoiling a 40 year old book. <laughs> yes, they're they're gin. There's 
there's there's fucking it's there's some stuff going on there but like anyway uh that's the book that got me like interested in like british cold war spy history and because the author's whole thing is that he wedges fantastic history into real history so i was reading this book and i'm like this can't like how much of this is real like all of it like all of the fucking seemingly insane british spy stuff is real like not the gin stuff not that that stuff but like all of the insane like 8 million KGB agents and everybody's fucking about with the Russians. That's all real. So like, no wonder the guy got disillusioned with his own fucking, the whole concept of nations when his own nation can't fucking like his own intelligence service. Can't like keep it, keep it shit together for two seconds without having, you know, barfing out another double agent or a triple agent. At the, at the top of the food chain, too. Yeah. Yeah, and referenced in this episode is specifically a notable... Um, yeah, the Cambridge Five. Yeah, the, a notable incident called the Cambridge Five, which was where five Cambridge students were arrested for being KGB agents. Um, and um, basically, like, this was a thing in the Cold War, is that MI6 recruited from the upper class. And so it's all these privileged people who are incredibly... Uh, vulnerable to like bribery and corruption who the KGB just was more than happy to offer shit to. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's, it's a, anyway, my point is just that it was, it's a really well-constructed backstory because it's the perfect time and place for someone with Greer's worldview to occur. Yeah. Like, Greer is only a genre shift away from becoming a Bond villain. (laughs) Yes, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. (laughs) Honest to God, he is, if there were a good reason for it, he would put a laser on a shark. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, he, like, the main thing stopping him is practicality. Yes. Um, yeah, I could I could totally see him like sitting in a leather chair stroking a long-haired white cat. Yeah. Like yeah, and he's got Martine like, is his is, is his long-haired white cat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also his jaws a little bit. <laughs> Sorry, I'm stretching that metaphor, um, but I'm okay with it. For for all that this episode is like has a lot of serious shit going on, it's also yeah. got like a lot of fun bits. It like does. the chip machine. Yes. The oh my god. To the subway. And like speaking of speaking of like you know this show doing genre shift sorts sorts of things like that's great. Yeah. Um, it's it's very fun. Um, also, Shaw's mention of like. Root wanting to obey their robot overlords. <laughs> it's like it's not a robot. Yeah. Uh, um, gosh, um, the bear. There's a there's a funny, just like weird, like it's one of those things where you like you hear a very specific bit of terminology, and you're like, huh, that's why did they include it and not just say like a generic thing like, um, when when the machine sends everything to hell, or Samaritan says everything to hell. Busco tells John some guy pr- protect some some guy cracked the witness protection list and put it up on paste bin. 
I uh, caught that just too. Like, yeah. It's, it's like instead of like and posted it online, he said and put it on pastebin, which is one of those things of verisimilitude that I just love of like yeah. referencing a referencing a thing of like, oh yeah, pastebin. Oh, sure. Yeah, because that's well, like which is, that is that is where you would put something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, great. And and it's so much better than him being like, and they put it on the dark web. Yeah. It's trying to sell it on the dark web or some shit like that. One thing I loved about this episode, the way that the machine's morality is center stage. You have mm-hmm. you have Finch's like relentless cynicism about the machine's mm-hmm. morality on one hand, and then you have the you have Samaritan's actual lack of morality on the other. And in between you have Root who steadfastly believes in the machine's morality. And the machine, which is in a situation where it has nothing to lose by lying about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or nothing to gain by lying about its own moral compass. Saying, I care about the people. Like, I think, the, I think humanity is worth protecting. That is the difference between you and me, is I was created with a mission, with a moral compass. And mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating that Finch continually underestimates what he's done. Yeah. Yeah. He d- he doesn't yeah. realize how fundamental that difference is. He 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 thinks he, he really doesn't believe that the moral code he gave the machine sunk in when yeah. it's the defining trait of the machine for all intents and purposes. Yeah. I overall yeah it's it's fascinating just like how much finch just refuses to believe in what he's created which is you know wild mm-hmm. yeah how much time he spent on it yeah um, the, the thing hey. that the thing that i keep thinking about with all of those things all the scenes where like finch is talking about the morality of the machine is that the view i take on it is that i feel like he's thinking of the long road in terms of like, you know, as the machine continues to grow and adapt and change and learn new things and see more things, he can't really predict whether it will continue, whether it will continue to have a moral code. Mm -hmm. That's how I, that's how I've kind of read it. And yet here it is faced with the, blunt threat of extermination the samaritan says you know you can't win and the machine says i know and yet it it's insistent that what makes them different is its moral code and that it will not give up its human agents because it knows they share its moral compass yeah which is man just give it give the machine just a little credit you fucking made it it's your (laughs) child like yeah god I love Finch. Harold fuck, is a terrible man. parent. That's you, what he I is. was just going to say. I mean, I love Harold, <laughs> but Christ, you are a terrible parent. Harold, stick with dogs. Right? Yeah. That was it. Um, so we, we, we have, we have now, we have, we have determined that Greer is not the human avatar for the machine. He's not, he is not the, the analog interface. Mm-hmm. Neither is a random British guy, Lambert, who in this episode we see, do the pop collar and talk to a camera thing that John does. Yeah. Um, and it is not Martine. 
It is instead a child, which is brilliantly fa- like it is fascinating because one, yeah, my my Samaritan incredibly genre aware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- because Samaritan is like choosing to use the like creepy kid tropes. Yeah, um, I thought Not I thought just that a it was creepy good- kid, a creepy kid named Gabriel. Of course, yeah. Because if a god, if a god is to have a voice, should it not be an angel? <laughs> uh, and um, I thought it was going to be the uh, the college student from a few episodes ago. Mm-hmm. I thought that she was going to be Samaritan's root. Yeah. Um, well, maybe maybe Samaritan burned her already. Yeah, I mean, you, I, if you look at the ta- like the the tags in Samaritan's point of view, Samar- Samaritan's of like you know, it's like asset eight oh five, asset like four oh nine. You know, there's there's a lot of folks running around. Yeah, or probably not running around anymore too. Yeah, I mean, considering that like the the rate at which Root decapped him in one of the previous episodes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like they're definitely they're definitely primary people, but uh, you know, not exactly a lot of like they're here for a good time, not a long time. <laughs> what was I going to say? Uh, oh yeah, I I think that the machine also wants people, and Samaritan doesn't want people; it wants functions. Yeah. And so it uses people for very specific functions. Only very few people get to be like agents. Mm-hmm. Like Greer is a fully functional agent of of Samaritan, and so is Martine. But I don't even know if Lambert is. Like, I think La- Lambert seems to like La- Lambert seems to at least have some level of autonomy, but who knows? Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting to draw the parallels directly between between the Samaritan characters that yeah. we've seen. It's like, it's like Team Machine and Team Samaritan, and they all have, like... Yeah, because Lambert, like, Lambert is very close to being Samaritan John. Yes. And Martine is... Pre- I'm pretty much Samaritan Shaw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And we've, we've arguably seen, like, a couple of different people who could be Samaritan Root. Yeah. No, definitely the kid. I think it's interesting that that's the one that hasn't been nailed down. The analog interface, the the humanizing element. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, Greer is Samaritan Harold. Yes. Smerald? That's a terrible word, and you should apologize. (laughs) It's like, no, no, thank you. No. Um, Also, Samaritan's going to crash the stock market. Now, we all know that that actually has no meaning. <laughs> but yes. I have to buy into this capitalist fiction that the that numbers go down is bad, which I will accept as a fictional construct. I've believed I've believed less fantastical things. Hashtag game stonks. God. Um, <laughs> if only because if that else is a banger. God, it is. It's. An incredible episode. I can't wait to get Anna's reactions to that episode. We got anything else we want to talk about here? Not for me. Um, okay. uh, well, I'll call out the very excellent, extremely aggressive flirting between Root and Shaw. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's a given, but, you know, 
I'll, mm-hmm. I'll just note my appreciation for it. And uh, I feel like I feel like Shaw's flirting back a heck of a lot more than she was, you know, a f- half a season ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So next time we are going to be covering the ultimate woof of an episode. <laughs> like not woof and like, oh, wow, that was a real struggle to watch. But like shit's going down. Yeah. Uh, woof. Those are going to be episodes 11 and 12 of season four. If then else and control alt delete. Until next time, we are being watched. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.